0: Hello and welcome back. This is Proofing and Lies. I'm Elle Rochford, professional sociologist and amateur baker.
1: And I'm Andrew Schreiber. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio.
0: And today we're talking with Dr. Caitlin Kelly Thompson, former, well, current friend of mine, formerly of Purdue. She recently won the American Political Science Association's Women, Gender, and Politics Section's 2021 Best Dissertation Award. So congrats on that. We're talking with her today about her dissertation work, which is on the Gezi Park protests, the Women's March, and the role of place, space, gender in politics.
1: Yeah, it's a great episode. Uh, We're excited to have her, and congratulations again uh, to Dr. Kelly Thompson.
0: We are, uh, this, this interview has a special place in my heart because at some point during this interview and, uh, you know, reach out to us on Twitter at proofing L, uh, if you can spot the minute that this happens, we are called away because we are on a, we were on a waiting list at the time of this, uh, recording for our vaccine doses and so we got the call in the middle of this interview (laughs) and so this was actually done in two parts but I tried to kind of mush it together in a way that it's not noticeable but if you catch where we break off and come back for sure uh drop us a tweet
1: yeah and uh thank you Caitlin for being so accommodating when we did have to cut you off in the middle of a sentence I think to uh to go take care of that
0: it was incredibly abrupt, and she was fabulous about rescheduling yes. with us. And now, it, it, I mean, that really feels like a lifetime ago. It was really just a few months ago. Uh, but, wow, it, things are brighter. The sun is sunnier. Yes. The air is cleaner. I mean, the air is probably the same, but it feels better.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, that, does, that feels like a lifetime ago. Gosh, yeah. But, anyway, uh, this is a, a wonderful interview and a wonderful baking project.
0: Correct. So speaking of lifetimes ago, uh, Andrew's old now.
1: I am old now.
0: He's incredibly old. I'm Uh, 30. (laughs) And so for his 30th birthday, we made a special birthday cake, uh, which is, he doesn't like cake, uh, traditional cakes.
1: I don't dislike it, but it's not my favorite. I like a cheesecake. Mm. I like a tiramisu.
0: And so I decided to combine these two things to make a tiramisu cheesecake. Um, So at this point, I've made a few cheesecakes, and I will say the recipe I used, I'm not going to share because I didn't think it was very helpful. I did okay with it, I think, because I have now made probably five or six cheesecakes. So it was kind of missing steps, or if you didn't read the recipe all the way through, you would miss things. It, It did the thing where it would list all the ingredients, tell you to add, you know, the mascarpone, and then at the very end, it said, "And now the quarter cup of mascarpone you reserved, but nowhere in the recipe does it actually tell you to do that." So I, I had some issues with the way the recipe was written, but the tiramisu cheesecake itself turned out way better than I expected. It, it was beautiful. It had like a little bit of a rustic vibe to it.
1: It was, it was gorgeous. It tasted really, really good. I was, uh, I was super thrilled with it. I was very, very
0: happy. It was delicious. And we have some really great pictures of of Andrew blowing out his birthday candles. Uh, it does look like we lit a tiramisu on fire yeah. <laughs> uh, because of the lighting. So I'll, I'll post those to our Instagram. Be sure you're following us on Instagram at Proofing and Lies. Uh, and Twitter is Proofing, capital L. Mm-hmm. We're not very active on TikTok these days, but we do have one. Yes. Uh, be sure you are liking, subscribing, leaving reviews, sharing with friends.
1: Yeah, we appreciate all that and, and everyone who's done it. And um, you know, it is my birthday, so for my birthday, please uh, share this podcast with a friend.
0: Yeah, he turned thirty, so share this with your thirty closest friends. Right? No, it was a it was a great birthday. It was a great cheesecake. This is a great interview and uh, so Caitlin Kelly Thompson is someone I met in grad school and I immediately thought she was the coolest person I've ever seen in real life.
1: Uh, it's a it's a wonderful interview, folks. We really appreciate you listening. We really appreciate Dr. Kelly Thompson and, and her time, uh, especially recording things twice back in, in February and March um, to, uh, to make this happen. So thanks for joining us once again and, and without further ado, Dr. Caitlin Kelly Thompson. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, This week, we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Caitlin Kelly Thompson. Uh, She is a lecturer at Tufts University. Uh, How are you doing today, Caitlin?
2: I'm doing good. How are you guys?
0: Good, good. 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 Um, So I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, So we uh, overlapped a little bit at Purdue. Um, I took some political science classes, uh, and I think you took some sociology classes.
2: Yeah, yeah, I definitely took a couple in sociology, I think with Rachel and Jean. So we are here to talk about some of your, your
0: work on place and protest and local politics. So I think just to get started, what are local politics and what do you mean by place? So maybe start broad, yeah.
2: Okay, so... Um, When I'm thinking about local politics, I'm mostly thinking about what we'd call like municipal or urban politics. Um, So a lot about, at least in my dissertation, I'm really focused on city councils and mayoral elections. So kind of one thing in political science is there's almost always a local election going on. So there's a lot of data that hasn't really been explored and a lot of phenomenon that haven't really been explored when we're thinking about local politics, but local politics is kind of this rich space where there's so much variation between cities. Um, And when I'm thinking about cities, I'm also not really like creating like a cutoff between like big cities and small, you know, towns and municipalities. And at least in my dissertation, I'm most interested in the question of Uh, when do women get elected to local office? Um, So we're really thinking about, you know, when are women elected to city council and when when are women elected to mayoral office? And this kind of gets at, you know, both women in politics and local politics stuff. So that's what I'm thinking about there. When I'm thinking about place and space, I'm really drawing a lot from work in kind of urban politics and political geography and kind of critical approaches to geography where we're thinking about place and space as things that are both material realities and are kind of socially constructed. So when you're thinking about the material world, It's designed in a way that kind of reflects what we value socially and this kind of reinforces, um, (laughs) you know, what is valued socially and so it kind of creates this nice, uh, what Henri Lefarbe calls like the social spatial dialectic, so getting a little bit Marxist here, but right, like the way space, the material space kind of influences how we understand social reality. And for me, some of the like really easy ways to get at this actually practically is think about things like, right, like streets, uh, who's whose mobility is valued by the way we design our streets and our cities. We really value the movement of cars over the movement of bicycles or human beings who are pedestrians or human beings who are using public transit. And this really says something about who we value and why. Um, And so that's like a nice practical, grounded example of that. But when I'm thinking about this in my dissertation, I'm more thinking about some of the gendered aspects of space. So. And I think many women um, and kind of people who don't necessarily fit into like neat and tidy gender categories would agree with this where kind of when you're out in the world in public space there are certain expectations about how you should behave and there are certain ways that you might be punished for kind of being outside of those norms. So especially thinking about like gender-based violence on the street. Um, And so I'm thinking a lot about like if public space is kind of this gendered space that supports particular people taking up that space and doesn't support other people taking up that space, what happens, for example, when women kind of claim the public space and say like, this is ours, we belong here. Um, And so that's kind of where the protest starts to come in because if we're thinking about kind of the material space and the social space reinforcing each other, I think that protest, and this is an argument that I make, is kind of this moment where you can like rupture that and kind of rethink whose space it is and how is social space understood. So I hope that's a good starting point. <laughs> no,
0: that that makes sense. And I feel like there's, for people who don't think about space in, in those terms, I think it can be hard for people to think that space is gendered, but it reminds me of a while back, there were photos of this library and people had designed the library so that the floors were, were grids or like a grate, um, so that you could see up. And the idea was that, that you would feel like you're in this really light floating place, but someone pointed out that people who wear high heels can't use that floor mm-hmm. and that people with vertigo can't utilize that space and that anyone who wears dresses or low cut shirts wouldn't be safe in that space because mm-hmm. you can look up and down at people without people seeing you. So whoever had designed the space hadn't made a space that was usable for people who dress that. So I think, I think that's what immediately came to mind. But thinking about that in terms of protest is really, really interesting.
2: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of really great work, especially in, like, feminist approaches to architecture and geography that get it, like, because the people who are designing these buildings are men, sometimes they aren't thinking, like, hey, I don't really want someone looking at my skirt, you know, like, for example, here in Boston, it's, like, the Apple store that's closest to us has these, like, clear stairs, and it's, like, oh, I'm gonna go to the Apple store, oh, I need to remember to wear pants, like, that's so absurd like (laughs) need to remember to wear pants to go get my computer fixed who was what were you thinking (laughs) I I don't really want people looking up at me
0: even when I'm wearing pants especially now that boot cuts are back but (laughs) yeah, I mean yeah
2: (laughs) yeah just like these moments of like I would like a word with you about so that's kind of getting at like we have these assumptions about who is in a space or who is designing it, where we design it, not necessarily for women and fens or anyone. I mean, I think that this also is really important when thinking about like um, also just like physical disability and things like that as well. And ADA. Right. Are you making sidewalks big enough that people in wheelchairs can pass each other? <laughs> Or are you like making sidewalks big enough that someone with a stroller can get through? Like these are like these things that because historically women have not been in these places of doing this, we're not paying attention to it. So like kind of this gender, there's like a really great, like just body of literature and geography and architecture of like feminist intervention saying like, we need to think about this um, and how are we designing these spaces? But when it comes to like a little bit, what I'm doing is I'm most interested in like the political space and how we understand who can have power and who cannot. And kind of my primary thesis for my dissertation is that protests that kind of critically push back or like critically engage with space and highlight, you know, these kind of gendered aspects of space or these kinds of, at least kind of my main case that I used for developing the theory was actually the Gezi Park protests where there were a lot of actions by queer and trans activists kind of pushing back against their fellow protesters and saying like, you are potentially reasserting kind of heteronormative straight understandings of this space and we wanna kind of push you to understand like how this space is understood as a trans person or as a queer person. And kind of the interesting thing that came out of that is these new kind of political alliances, which I've addressed also and kind of work on active solidarity with like Rachel Einwander and like that whole (laughs) giant group. But one of the interesting things that came out of it was for the first time. Um, a trans woman who's also Kurdish and also a sex worker decided to run for local office. So a lot of our theories for understanding when women will run for office in political science actually look at this, like, very specific pool of supply of possible candidates. So it's kind of like these, like, highly educated, you know, in like lawyers, people who are in specific fields, kind of women, and we assume that like, those, and we look at things like political ambition, like do these kinds of women who fit um, the bill of like who we expect to run for office, are they going to run for office? Do they have ambition? And I kind of wanted to make this intervention of like, well, protest is actually this space where women who, we might not expect because they don't have these same kinds of opportunities, can then build political capital both kind of through the protest but also like view themselves as like a possible candidate and take that step. So in the specific case of Isa Elmas who is the who is a trans woman, she's Kurdish and she's also a sex worker, her running for office, she said like, you know, in a lot of interviews she said things like you know, through the protest I saw how my allies like just weren't good enough at addressing issues that were specific to me. And so I decided, you know, the best, one of the best ways to do this is to like run a campaign and push the political party that says that they're allying with people who are like me to say like, okay, put your money where your mouth is. Right. So kind of one of my, kind of what I was thinking in my dissertation, and I do find some evidence for this is that when you have these kinds of moments that disrupt this idea of who can have power, then people who traditionally don't have power can then make new claims to say like, actually I'm going to run because even if you're my ally, you're not necessarily doing a good enough <laughs> job. Right. And um, so that was kind of what I'm trying to get at, which I think I do. And kind of the key here is both like this, this interruption with space and kind of this development of what like inclusive protests that's really building on um, the work with that active solidarity crew about like, what is an inclusive protest? How do you develop forms of solidarity that address like these unequal power dynamics? And I kind of hypothesize that like, when you have a protest, which is kind of this disruption of space that also develops this inclusion, we're more likely to see, you know, new political candidates um, coming into being. I just like talked at y'all <laughs> oh,
1: no, it was really good.
2: Uh, well I wondered
0: if you could give us some background on the Gezi Park protests
2: yeah so the Gezi Park protests happened in 2013 in Istanbul in the spring so the protests started uh because there's this plan so Ooh, I feel like I have to like back up like three steps. Okay, so there's a park. (laughs) So there's this park, Gezi Park. It's um, near what's called Tahrir Square. And it's kind of off the side of uh, what's called Istiklal, which is in the Taksim, Beolu neighborhood. And so like kind of start like, so this neighborhood is a space where there's like a lot of the nightlife is, a lot of the queer community is in this space. And it's like highly pedestrianized area and kind of Gezi Park is this like one little piece of green space in this neighborhood. So there's a lot of different reasons why the protest happened and kind of historically Tahrir Square is an area where like after Galatasaray wins, soccer tournament stuff that's where people celebrate um that's where mayday protests are held every year istiklal has historically been where like gay pride and trans pride have been held so it's kind of this historic space of like that's where you gather um and this has to do a lot with like the history of how talk swear came into being uh when the republic was founded uh there's just like yeah so gezi as kind of this like One little piece of green space, Um, the Erdogan kind of allied AKP folks decided that they, as part of this like larger kind of re-automization process they've been going through with public space, they wanted to rebuild the Ottoman barracks. That had previously been in the park so these barracks had been destroyed when the republic was founded to create the park um and they kind of wanted to rebuild it and just like a little bit of background on this reautomization process usually when they're doing kind of these like historic rebuilding things they're basically making like malls in them a lot of times so it's kind of this really weird and interesting combination of like neoliberal capitalism And, like, imagined histories and, like, trying to bring back, like, ideas of, like, reifying the Ottoman past is better than the Republican past. So it, like, gets at, like, a lot of different issues (laughs) going on in terms of Turkish politics. But so they're going to do this. They're going to bulldoze the park. And a group of environmental activists are like, okay, we don't want you to bulldoze the park because we want to protect this green space. So they occupy the park and they get violently kicked out. And then a lot of other communities show up to occupy the park because it's kind of one of those things where just because, you know, for the environmental activists, it's about the green space for a lot of the people in the neighborhood, which again, it's like um, pretty more on like a more left-wing neighborhood in general um, for them. It's also important because you know, it's also a space where you like have picnics and like hang out with people. And it's also um, at some point been, at some points, been a cruising ground. And at some points, it's been, you know, it's also really important to the left wing community because it's where you hold Mayday protests. So, for example, in 2012, when I was living in Istanbul and I went to the Mayday protest, right, like one of the best spots to be to be able to actually see the speakers was to kind of try to get to like, the highest point. Thinking about the protests that happened in 2013 in Gezi is like, so it starts with this like small group of environmental lists and they're occupying the park because they're trying to prevent basically bulldozers from coming in and getting rid of the trees. And then they kind of get violently kicked out. And then the next day, basically the whole neighborhood shows up. And right, like, as the state tries to get people out, more people show up, and so one of the really interesting things about Gezi, in terms of, like, Turkish politics, is that you have this kind of very diverse coalition, so you have, like, people who are very Turkish nationalist, as well as, like, Kurdish groups, as well as, like, LGBT groups, as well as, like, football fan clubs, and which are traditionally, like, have some very homophobic chants, et cetera. And through kind of the process of the protest, you have people kind of building better understandings of each other. And this is something that we I like use the Getty case as a case of what we call active solidarity in that group, where you have kind of this deliberative process where you're dealing with these power differences and you're dealing with these issues. And in the end, you have like a more Uh, a better coalition out of it right so one of the things you have for example is you have like Turkish nationalists being like wow I did not I thought I understood like the quote-unquote Kurdish problem but I didn't and like maybe rethinking their positions there and you also have you know very like secular Turks as well as like very religious Turks um, together kind of in one case they had like a a breaking of fast and because it's also like around the time of Ramadan like you know layers of things happening and so like while this like fast breaking is happening you have you know more secular tricks kind of like protecting their more religious allies who are trying to do this within the park during the protest you know against the police etc so One of the things I'm most interested in in this is kind of the way the space of the park is used and what that shows us about this process of building these solidarities. So one of the things I look at is political graffiti and I kind of have a long discussion about like why I view political graffiti as important when we're thinking about kind of making claims on space because when you're looking at political graffiti, a lot of the times you have claims that are both kind of discursive claims about people, as well as the kind of this inherent spatial claim, because it's on the physical space itself, right? So you're making kind of these discursive claims about the space and who it's for through these kind of conversations. And- You know, a good amount of the graffiti is kind of like your standard, just whatever graffiti where you even have like examples of Ali loves Aisha and things like that. But then you also have these pieces where, you know, there's like someone putting like this long Atatürk quote or you have people like raising issues, you know, with Kurdish representation. And one thing that I really focused on were especially some of these pieces that are getting at specifically like the need for space for trans Turks and also for like queer Turks and also in terms of claims about sexism. So you have some cases and one of the ones I look at in my dissertation too is kind of this overlaying of graffiti where someone has erased another person's slogan and said, I erased this because it was sexist. So to me, this is also kind of this ongoing discussion about who the space is for and what it's for because we have evidence in some of the other work on Gezi that we have these conversations going on in kind of deliberative spaces about like, well, your slogans are sexist or your slogans are queerphobic, and like we need to adjust this and have a conversation about it. But then I'm also finding evidence of this happening on the space itself. So when we're thinking about like we're trying to make a less sexist space. So I'm calling you out, but I'm also telling you why I did this, right? Like I erased your piece, but I'm letting other people know why I erased it. So it's like this ongoing conversation, which people who study graffiti, this is not necessarily something that's surprising to them because, right, a lot of times you do have these ongoing conversations between artists that happen in the space where they're like, you know, kind of fight with each other over (laughs) whose space it is. And so that's, kind of one of the interventions I'm trying to make is that we can see this happening in terms of who is claiming the space for who, and then on the other side of that, through looking at like the encampment itself. So within Gezi's encampment, it's like queer community had their own kind of tents and area, right? And like that physical claiming of space and that kind of autonomous space of like, we're here, these are our tents. Like, if you wanna learn about stuff, like, you're totally invited to, but also we have just as much a right to be here. Um, So kind of getting from that to like running for office, I looked a lot at these interviews, um, as well as a documentary that Aisha Elmas did about her campaign, where she's talking about one of the things that she goes back to is kind of this experience of being in the park, and the experience of And some of her colleagues as well saying, like, one of the experiences we had in the park is that before Gezi, you know, a lot of Cis Turks would not recognize us, like, would not talk to us, would not sit next to us in a restaurant. And then after Gezi, having these experiences of people being like, oh, I remember you from Gezi and this more of, like, mutual recognition of, like, you are human and also you, we have this shared experience and, you know, this kind of that view and so kind of looking at kind of unpacking how this particularly inclusive where we have you know these outcomes that kind of show that the solidarity has been built etc cetera, etc cetera, but such thing like trying to trace out like how does that support new political candidates arising right so looking at especially elmas her case and how she discusses this and also how she discusses her relationship with um The HDP, which is the political party that she ran under, which is kind of a this I mean, I'm not going to go super in depth about this because Turkish political parties change a lot over time. And they're kind of these constant rebrandings and changings of names. But so the HDP is kind of this reformation of a Kurdish party where they're kind of trying to have a wider tent to include more left wing Turks. Um, and so for Elmas, it makes sense to run under the HDP for mayor of Katakoy, which is a district of Istanbul. Um, and she, she, it makes sense to her because it's like she's Kurdish, right? So there's that. There's also the fact that the HDP has these kind of interesting internal structures where they have co-chairs. So they really value gender equality within the party so they have their own internal rules where it's like they have male and female co-chair always and these kinds of things so it, she's like okay it makes sense because ideologically we're on board I'm also Kurdish like this makes sense but she's kind of says like you know but they aren't ideologically they're interested in addressing the issues of trans and queer Turks however they're not necessarily doing a great job of it because you need more in order for our issues to be on the agenda, you need to actually be there, which is, of course, this like very, if you are in political science, like a very like descriptive representation, Mansbridge claim about like why are descriptive representatives necessary? Um, and so I just, in my dissertation, I was kind of trying to pull like, okay, so we go from protest to running for office, why might these linkages be happening? Um, and then somehow, the dissertation ended up being about <laughs> the women's March, which if you guys want to talk about that, I can talk about that too. But that for Wait, me is West like, West what's West important West. about the Gessie case.
0: The The women's March in the U.S. or the. Is there in a, the like,
2: U.S. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was like a weird. Um, well, I guess not weird. It makes, I make, I make it make sense, but um, yeah. If you guys want to talk about like why, the kind of change in context and all of that. I can also talk about that too. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I was going to say, how did, how did you get from uh, <laughs> Kurdish politi- uh, political officials or whatever in, in Turkey to, uh, to the U.S. Women's March?
2: Yeah, so one thing with my dissertation was I was interested in kind of getting at, like, does this travel, right? So is this just something that happens in this like very specific case that I spent most of my PhD kind of like really in. And so when I was trying to like when we were looking for cases to apply this to empirically was around the time that the women's march was happening. So it was like, you know, you're looking for cases, you're trying to figure out how to get at this empirically. I had a few, you know, I'd written some like proposals where I had a few other things where you have some of this like engagement in space but they're very much like local movement type things and the women's march provided this kind of unique opportunity to actually get at this quantitatively as opposed to just qualitatively and do a more mixed methods approach which just from like uh getting your phd and like using that on the job market perspective of like being like I can do a range of things like I'm not i I'm trained as a mixed methods researcher and I can do it, right, demonstrating that. And so, yeah, so when the Women's March happened, that kind of provided a unique opportunity to kind of say like, I'm arguing that protest makes a difference in terms of who we should expect to run for office and do we actually see that happening? Especially since kind of my training and where I come from is more of what we would call like the women in politics literature, these cases are like, helps make the point of like, this travels to this literature that I'm drawing on, right? Um, So I kind of moved to that. And so with the Women's March, I have like a quantitative element. So I have a data set that I built of all 330, cities and municipal, like cities, towns, municipalities. I, th- I say municipalities, cause it's not always like large enough to be considered a city um, that held competitive mayoral elections at, in the like period after the first women's March in 2017. Um, and so then I use that to kind of see like, if we have a protest, do we see, for example, an association between the presence of a protest and more women running for office, and I do find that. (laughs) So I I was actually very skeptical on if I would find this with the Women's March, because for me, some of the aspects of protests that were really important to Gezi are not necessarily present in every Women's March. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I could actually get into that. But yeah, so I did find this association between more women running, and this is controlling for things like have women run in the past, as well as like I made an index called the Women-Friendly Municipality Index. So I took like a previous work on women in congressional districts that kind of shows that like particular characteristics of a district are associated with women running and winning. I did not test whether or not women win because I was more interested in this, like, do women run. And I looked at both women and women of color. I, With women of color, it is, like, kind of collapsed down in part because of issues of not having enough cases, (laughs) which I think is a whole other, like, discussion of, like, problems when we're talking about this. And then also in terms of... Women of color, I find some differences in terms of what we might expect. And so kind of in terms of future work, one thing I'm thinking about is like, I mean, I think that we would expect to have more black women running for office in cities where we've also had Black Lives Matter protests. Right. So like getting at some of these like other things that are important because the women's march, as we know, has been critiqued a lot for being very white. Um, And then that's what my qualitative (laughs) kind of portion. So I found this association, which was cool because it was like, okay, yeah, this theory that I developed looking at Gezi does potentially travel, that's cool. But then it was like, okay, so do the same things apply. And so I did comparative case study. I did a very in-depth case study of the Boston Women's March to get at more of like how they were using space. And then I did a comparative case study of um, Boston, Pittsburgh, San Antonio and Amarillo. because um, I was trying yeah, I was trying to find ones that kind of hit on the right spots of my typology. Um, and so it's it's actually very difficult to find women's marches. So one of the things that I that matter for my typology right is like how does it engage with space? and also like how inclusive is the march. And one thing that was really difficult to find is like things that engage with space in kind of a critical way, but then also don't have a lot of inclusion or diversity. Like that is the hardest case to find. (laughs) Yeah, so Amarillo ended up being kind of like the case where I was like, okay, well this this works for that. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, so. Pittsburgh is a really interesting case because they fail dramatically in terms of inclusion. Nice. And it leads to um, a counter-protest of the women's party. So that one I really enjoyed working on um, because it's yeah. just like, it's, it's kind of a good example of like why inclusion matters. <laughs> yeah. so,
1: so like a, a counter-protest by like people of color, you mean? Or like... Yeah. But, okay. So...
2: Yeah, like a collective of um, particularly like women kind of black femmes organized a protest that kind of centered, you know, black femmes in this. Um, and so this is if you if I, you guys want me to talk about it, I can too. Um, this, yeah. OK, so Pittsburgh is interesting. So what happens with Pittsburgh is the protest is organized by white women from the suburbs. So, and this is something that comes up also in my Boston case, right? This kind of suburban white women becomes kind of important when thinking about inclusion for me and kind of my cases. Okay, so in Pittsburgh, it's organized by white women from the suburbs. And um, it all kind of, this, this whole thing starts to come to a head um, on their Facebook group when a, a Black woman is like, you know, is this protest just going to be for like white women. Like your organizing group is all white women, like what's up with this? And so black women and queer women in particular make these interventions of like, okay, you need to like include more black women and queer women and women of color in general in your organizing team. And instead of kind of onboarding the critique the Pittsburgh organizers like doubled down. And so there's there's kind of these moments where like some kind of racist stuff gets said in these like social media threads and all of these things. And so then and and so then we end up with a counter-protest. Okay, so another reason why the counter-protest happens is so historically there is a summit about racism in Pittsburgh the same weekend. And it happens every weekend and it's been happening for a while, but the women's March organizers were not engaging with that group or connecting their March to that group at all. Right. So this is something too, that, especially like black women were like, I mean, you guys know that there's this summit, right? So like your March should connect to the summit because you should be trying to get people to go to both. Right. Cause this is, racism is a huge issue in Pittsburgh and so kind of as this all shakes out the pittsburgh march almost gets uh kicked out of the women's march in general at the national level because of this wow they have to change their leadership um all of these things happen they bring in a black woman to kind of lead the women's march but they're still not necessarily connecting with the state but at this point the counter march is already happening um so the counter march happens in a neighborhood called east of liberty which is experiencing a lot of gentrification um and is and ties in with this summit that's happening so basically you know you can like go to the march and the summit because that makes sense right if you're trying to build coalitions and inclusion you want to be making those connections whereas the pittsburgh march happens in downtown pittsburgh So that's kind of getting at some of like the spatial elements. But so the Pittsburgh march is kind of my case of like the women's march is not really critically engaging with space (laughs) because they're not thinking like, how do I connect to like the summit that's happening in this neighborhood that's experiencing like gentrification and all these things, you know, where some of the rubber hits the road on these issues. Um, And instead, they're having it downtown on a weekend, which like, There's not necessarily as much going on downtown on the weekend. Right. Um, So kind of getting at that stuff. So the Pittsburgh march is interesting in that it's a case where it's like they they didn't just fail at building kind of like active solidarity, as we might call it in the solidarity group, but they like dramatically fail. Right. And like, what are the consequences of this kind of dramatic failure? Um, is an interesting thing to kind of think about so yeah so in terms of like and it, it kind of works out the way I expected to You <laughs> haven't so that's cool for me um right <laughs> yeah but yeah I think I think it's a really good case for thinking about specifically right like in and this is something that happens in the Boston March as well where the organizing teams for the Women's March tend to be Like, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, they tend to be these, like, suburban white women. Um, And when we're thinking about kind of spatial politics in the United States, um, it's really important to think about, like, okay, the suburbs these days are not as white as... Uh, we, they used to be, but there are still suburbs that we could consider what's called like white protected suburbs. So these are suburbs that have historically tried to maintain um, their whiteness. And so one interesting thing with the Boston case is that like the first meeting about the march actually happens in a suburb that has historically been white protected. So And this is where I get to get into like some of the other stuff that I really love, which is like these fights about, for example, public transit, Um, because the suburb in Boston is one where there were these efforts to expand what's called the red line, um, the subway out to through this town, Lexington, um, and out towards Concord and there was now there's this like really beautiful um hike and bike trail but like the history of this beautiful hike and bike trail is that uh basically the suburbs out past where the red line ends were like no we do not want um city people and gangs you know if we have this if we have the subway come out we're going to have these roving gangs and it's going to destroy destroy the neighborhood character and all of these other things right and it's I mean, in terms of when you look at the differences in like medium income between Lexington and Boston, it's very clear that it's still a very wealthy neighborhood. It's increasingly, it's like had increasing amounts of um, increases in terms of the Asian population, but in terms of the Black population in the neighborhood, even though the Black population has increased, the Black population in schools has not So there's, you know, some, there's definitely some stuff happening in Lexington. And that's where the first meeting for the Women's March happens in Boston. Um, And it's mostly, you know, one of, and this is also, oh man, okay, I'm just going to talk to you. I'm just like going to keep going. So in Boston, you have a group of highly connected women in the suburbs, and they're like very connected to Boston politics, not more like uh, Massachusetts Democratic Party politics. These are people who they've been involved in multiple democratic national conventions. Like they're very, very well connected and savvy and, you know, highly educated, all of these things. Um, And then you have, they're kind of starting to organize a Boston Women's March. And then you have just a woman in Jamaica Plain who like after talking to her friends and is like, oh man, I don't really like, I don't think I can afford to like go to DC. Like that seems like a lot of work for us to do. Like, I'm just gonna like, what if we just organized a women's march? And she does, she kind of starts in the way that a lot of women's marches start, right? There's a Facebook page and she talks to the, you know, she goes and gets a permit (laughs) for a protest, right? And at the same time, there's this very connected group. And so they find out, right, that Charity has the permit. And so they invite her um, to kind of their first meeting. And one of the most interesting interviews, I, you know, one of some of the interesting things that come up in interviews for people who are not necessarily a part of this well connected group, but they were invited to this meeting is they're like, there are these discussions of, like, yeah, I found the other person who was, like, Barry Boston, and I was, like, I don't think I belong here, (laughs) and they were, like, I don't think I belong here, either, like, and, and these are not necessarily unconnected people, either, these are people who maybe have, like, connections to, for example, our current mayor, who's now joined the Biden commission, you know, Biden administration, Marty Walsh, and stuff like that, but they're, their experience of that space right their experience of that meeting is like am I supposed to be here you know I this like feeling of like class and it's more class because this group is also still more like it's much more white on average but this kind of feeling of like I went all the way out to this very nice suburb and they're like talking about like how beautiful and nice the houses (laughs) and like this is kind of what they're focusing on when they're talking about their experience of this meeting which is to me right thinking about one of the things that the Boston case allowed me to get into more because this is also like where I live so I was also doing some more participant observation type work is how like the space of the city itself created some of these barriers for developing inclusion within their march so that's their first meeting and then they hold a meeting in Jamaica Plain which is actually the neighborhood where I live um, so just like some reference for people who don't know about Jamaica Plain like Ayanna Presley is the representative for Jamaica Plain it's in terms of that district it's some of the whiter parts of that district but it's still pretty mixed in terms of like there's a large um, Latinx community Um, And so there are a couple of like large public housing in Jamaica Plain, like it's a pretty mixed neighborhood in terms of income, Um, though it is, again, becoming more white (laughs) and becoming more wealthy because of some gentrification issues, which so thinking about Jamaica Plain, they hold this meeting in Jamaica Plain, and they invite a lot of the local organizing community in Boston. A lot of people who went to that meeting thought that was the first meeting. They thought that was the first meeting about organizing the Women's March. So there's this huge disconnect between the organizers of the Women's March and the community that's there for that meeting, because the organizers think this is a working meeting of like, we're going to onboard you and tell you what to do. And the organizing community is like wait but we haven't had all of the conversations that we would normally have in figuring out like what are we doing and why are we doing it why do we already have a platform what's going on with this so it ends up being this like very contested uncomfortable space where you know in terms of some of the people who it was their first experience with organizing or like their first experience either running a meeting or their first experience going to a meeting they're like wow that was really painful and difficult to like you know and some people who came to the meeting they still you know decided to get involved and do things um but i also interviewed at least a few people who decided after that meeting like i don't want to do this so in particular um one uh, black woman that I interviewed was like, you know, because of her own professional background, she was like, to me going to that, it sounded like they had not thought about inclusion. They had not thought about the power dynamics and they were not doing the work they needed to do to address that. And she was like, and I knew that if I got involved with that, I would have to be the one who would do it. Right. And so instead I decided to go to D.C., Because that, you know, I knew they'd already thought about this. (laughs) So I wouldn't have to be the one doing that work. I had enough work on my plate already, you know, making that decision that way, which for me kind of shows some of the issues with like they held this meeting in Lexington. And then for the organizing community, the other meeting was the first meeting, but there had already been this meeting that was not really open. To the organizing community and not necessarily accessible because to get to Lexington from Jamaica Plain, for example, you have to take two trains and then I guess a bus if you don't bike and then walk for a really long way. Like it's not, whereas if you're like thinking about connections to where a lot of people work, right? Because a lot of organizers who are from the suburbs, they have cars or they work downtown. It's like, Jamaica Plain from downtown, you have like multiple bus train options, right? So for me, that case allowed me to get like way more into like how does the space of the city actually influence our ability to develop inclusion and then it's like inclusion then <laughs> influences how we critically engage with space. And so I think for me, it helped me get more at this like dialectic relationship that LaFerbe talks about, about like space to this, to that, and like the kinds of interventions you need to do to think about it. It's
0: really interesting to think about, um, and I, I see this a lot with the Women's March, cause I also work in social movements of people who think a protest is an event, it's an event planning thing. So you would get together with your committee and you would plan the event versus a a protest is movement building and movement building is community and it's community work and relationships. And it's a conversation that continues that happens to have like this outward expression Mm -hmm. of a protest event. But it seems like the difference between living in a space and visiting a space or using a space Mm -hmm. as a set for your event.
2: Yeah and what's funny is you get it, it's like I didn't even tell you about like the kind of leadership but the leadership was thinking about this as an event mm-hmm. and in some ways the fact that they were thinking about it of an event was actually good for thinking about things like accessibility because they were thinking about things like do we have enough toilets <laughs> right. for example. So there are like some ways that because they were thinking about it as an event um, they were a little bit more prepared for the size of the event because the Boston march was huge like it was very very large but in some ways because they were thinking about it as an event their actual like marching part was a little bit of a mess you know like some of these other things so it's like this interesting case for me of like these different ways of thinking about things especially because A lot of the organizers, it's like their previous experience is very much like Democratic Party work, which and they were like, this is my first experience with a protest. And it's like, well, this is your first experience, but you're also the one organizing it. But you weren't pulling in more people who have experience organizing protests so like what is going on here and so I I mean and this is not to say like they did a bad job or anything it's more to like think about these like dynamics and things because they're all like very lovely and excellent people um and I think that they were doing the best that they could with you know what they had and it's interesting to think about like how that shapes what happens right like you know you're doing the best of what you have but like what does that mean um, for what happens at the end. I mean, one thing that was really interesting with the Boston march is that they have some of these issues, but they also, as a, po- unlike the Pittsburgh march, when these moments happen where there's like these critical junctions where their limitations are like presented to them, they approach that as like, whoa, we did not think about this. What do we need to do? Like, how do we need to change what we're doing to make this better? to address these issues. So for example, at the walkthrough for the march itself, the like indigenous community in Boston was like, you are not thinking about this. You are not thinking about us. You are not addressing us. And for some of the organizers, they're like, oh, we didn't even realize there is an indigenous community in Boston, which like, again, thinking about like the space of the city. Okay, maybe that makes sense with where they are. For me, I literally live like a couple doors down from the, uh, I can't remember, like, I'm like, names are bad for me sometimes, but from an organization that specifically addresses the Indigenous community, right? So, like, for me, living in Jamaica, like, kind of this intersection of Jamaica Plain and Mission Hill, like, I walk by that building (laughs) and like sometimes they're having events where like it spills out onto the sidewalk right so it's hard to ignore that the indigenous community exists in boston if you actually see that community right and in terms of like some of the organizers i know in town who i've worked on other stuff you know it's like when columbus day they're like oh yeah they do that every you know like this protest happens every columbus day like they know who who to reach out to they know what's going on because if you're working on organizing, you know who your potential allies are, right?
1: Well, that's what I was going to, so I, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking back to what you said about the, the protests in Turkey, about how it was, you know, this sort of coming together because a bunch of different groups and different people from all walks of life, so to speak, whatever, all used this part. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about that compared to maybe this is, re, you know, reductionist, whatever. But I'm thinking about that compared to the American experience where most American municipalities are incredibly segregated. Mm-hmm. And white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods have different public spaces and different, you know, uh, touchstones and different sets of things. And I, I'm thinking there are very few places like mm-hmm. Gezi Park in America that that have that inclusive nature.
2: Yeah. I mean, so that was one of the issues, right? With like thinking about can this theory travel? Because like mm-hmm. for me, and one of the important things about Gezi is that it has all these like multiple understandings for, and different people use it for different reasons, and like it's important to everyone in that. In like, it's important to people not just to like live in the Bayou neighborhood, mm-hmm. but like so. For example, when I was living in Istanbul, I lived like way in the north, like it because the university I was going to was way in the north and it was like but we were going there like every weekend because that's where like that's where you went to hang out (laughs) like that that is where people hang out that's where you go and that's where you know you meet up with your friends who don't necessarily go to this university way in the north etc and again like much more public transit options so it's like not difficult to do uh but so one of the interesting things for me in Boston is like in some ways, the Boston Common could be Gezi. Mm-hmm. So when you look at like the history of the Boston Common, which so you know, when the Boston Commons created at the very beginning of Boston, you know, it is literally a common grazing ground and then Boston becomes more urbanized and it's not. And so for a long time, you know, then it was kind of this like playground of the rich. For a while before Back Bay like before Back Bay exists right the Boston Common is kind of this playground for the rich it's like where you go out in your carriage to like show everyone how cool your carriage is and like see and be seen and like stroll with your lady friend or whatever and your chaperones and then kind of around the time that you that Back Bay starts getting developed, there's a lot of these anxieties about the common because Irish immigrants are like having picnics in the common and like that's, you know, we need to make Back Bay so that we can get away from these like (laughs) immigrants and their picnics. Um, And even today, like if you go to the common, I mean, there's a mix of people out and about because it is kind of this like, it's easy to get to from a lot of neighborhoods. Um, It's where kind of the hub, like a lot of the trains come together around that area because all of the trains are built to getting people downtown, right? Um, But it's an area where you'll see a lot of different groups of people from a lot of different social classes, you know, there are people with their dogs, there are tourists, there are people who are unhoused, like it's a very like mixed, you know, there are people coming to like go grab I mean a friend of mine who works at the Boston Athenaeum like will go grab lunch at like food trucks in the common right like this is still kind of this potential space and that is where you know and historically like protests that MLK led in Boston were in the common so and there are all these other like interesting historical protests so for example um telephone operators back in the day when, you know, you actually had the switchboard, Um, there are like these series of telephone operator protests and they would kind of dress up in their fancy clothes and like have like cool girl parties kind of protests in the common um, as part of like that. So like, there's all these like, so in some ways the common shares a lot of similar history to Gezi over a much longer period of time, because Gezi comes about in like the 1930s and the common has existed since colonialism, um, settler colonialism started, right? So it potentially has this, but the way that the the protest organizers were thinking about the common was it was like, well, we considered doing events at Fenway, but it's not big enough. So we did the common because it's what's big enough. And it's like, that's kind of weird to me. Like the yeah. common is, <laughs> it's not just that it is, I mean, cause it is one of the few spaces that's big enough, it's quite large, but also like, it's interesting to think that you're not like drawing on some of these interesting histories right. or like or like connecting to some of this um, for me. But again, I'm like super interested in that. So I'm like spending a bunch of time being like, let's look at the history of the common. <laughs> um, But yeah, so and I mean, I think it's it like has this potential as a space, as a shared space. But again, one thing that I think is and this is like more thinking like future. Right. One thing that's interesting to think about now is that, okay, this past summer um, in terms of like Black Lives Matter protests, the real center of that has been more Franklin Park. That's what it is i was like franklin park it's near forest hills it's like okay so franklin park is this really large park that is kind of between roxbury and jamaica plain and that is where like this summer when people were holding protests for like black lives matter protests that was the starting point was franklin park and then, kind of since this summer, there's been this ongoing protest uh, that's like the bike bike for Black Lives, and they start. The starting point is always like the same part part of Franklin Park, and so like it's a bike ride. So they go all over Boston, um, and they do they do kind of different routes every time, but it's always starting in Franklin Park. So in terms of thinking like this question, like okay, different spaces, like whose spaces? Franklin Park is kind of like, maybe a more inclusive space to start. (laughs) If you're like, I wanna pick the most inclusive space in Boston, like maybe it's Franklin Park, not necessarily the common, which is interesting. You know, again, like this is me, like, I'm still like spinning, like, what do I do next? Kind of thing of like, how do I move this forward? And I think for me, there's like a really interesting comparative case between like the Boston Women's March And the protests that happened this summer, and also especially Bike for Black Lives, because they are very conscious about how, like, who is speaking, you know, who are they speakers, what is going on, what is the role of like white people in that space, and what do we, you know, and like, there's this ongoing conversation about like, you know, what does it mean to show up? And what does it mean? Like, is this is kind of a learning space, and we're going to keep doing this every month. And also just like a different, for me, again, a different way of thinking about claiming space, because it's like they're intersecting kind of this like bikes claiming space. What does it mean to claim space for Black lives? What does that look like? And especially thinking about how, because using bikes means that you can kind of expand that space a lot more geographically. So, you know, some of their rides have gone from like Franklin Park to Cambridge and up and around. Like, it gives you kind of this interesting idea of like, what does it mean to claim space? How, and how can you claim space of the entire city over a few months, right? So, yeah, I think this question of like, does does the U.S. even have spaces like Gezi is still like one that like I think about all the time (laughs) just because of the way we organize space. We like to to sort it also where it's like you have parks in residential areas and residential areas are separate from where you hang out with people. And we're going to use cars to get everywhere. Like, and what does that mean in terms of our ability to build inclusive movements? And I think that it means that it's really difficult.
1: (laughs) Well, um, on that note, uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Caitlin Kelly Thompson, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate you have uh, we appreciate you coming on yeah. and sharing mm-hmm. your time and thoughts with us. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug, or where can people find you, or you know, find more of your work?
2: I mean, I guess that you can find me at my website. I have a website. I think it's K. It's let me look. It's K. Kelly thompson.com
1: yeah we'll attach it to the. yeah sure.
2: yeah and I do have twitter but it's not always very professional <laughs> <laughs> mine is like an even mix between academics and airbud and I think that's the sweet spot for me mm. yeah so like if you want to follow me on twitter it's like at DKT. yeah and so it's you're gonna get a mix of like boston politics and bikes and then like sometimes political science and lately lots of talking about like teaching (laughs) because that's my life
1: well thank you so much for coming on uh